Um, so we're in the middle of a series uh, right now called uh, a community hermeneutic, where we're doing a practice of community hermeneutic to discern how we are going to uh, practice gender and leadership in our community. Now, those are all probably words that are not super familiar to you that you use every day. So let me just quickly walk through what that is. The word hermeneutic means how we understand and interpret and apply the scriptures. And the word, putting the word community in front of that means that we want the people who, we believe that the people who comprise this community, this church, who are saying yes to following Jesus in this place and in this time with us, that we all have a voice together, that our voices are important to understand how we should understand, interpret, and apply scriptures. And we're doing a process, a six-week process of discernment. That word is really key for us, that we're discerning how God would have us to practice this question of gender and leadership, which we're going to get into today. So two weeks ago, I introed this idea, and then last week, we talked about our stories, kind of gave some introductions to uh, how important our stories are. Uh, and they're kind of one of the key pieces of this, one of the three key pieces. And then this week, we're going to move now into a time of talking about Scripture. So the, we're going to talk about why people from Scripture would be, take a complementarian stance this week. And then next week, we're going to do why people in scripture, from Scripture would take an egalitarian stance. And please do not read into like which one came first and which one came second. There is no reason, okay? Please hear that. Uh, we're just doing it in this order. So this week, we're going to talk about complementarianism. Next week, we're going to talk about egalitarianism. And then we're going to follow that up by talking about the Spirit of Christ and how we discern in making this decision by looking at the life of Jesus and also what the Spirit would have to say to us in this time and in this moment. And as Gareth said, we'll have a Q&R. So if there's questions that you want to have, that you have for me, things you want to discuss, um, we'll have that on, on February 12th. I'm very happy to, to go for a coffee, almost so that you can buy me a coffee. You could buy me a coffee, or I could buy you a coffee. And, uh, and, and discuss further. But uh, on February 12th, we'll also have this kind of like an open forum where we'll chat further. So we're talking, uh, like I said, in the next two weeks about the reasons for complementarianism from the Bible and then the reasons for egalitarianism. And by doing this, I'm, I'm tipping my hat a little bit here. I'm showing my cards to say that I think there's actually a biblical basis for both of these positions. Most churches would teach one or the other, but not both. But I actually think there's a biblical position for both. And I'll give you some, some reasons why I think that. The first is from the wider church in Canada and the world and throughout history. So if you look back at history, at how people have practiced gender and leadership, you'll see, especially early, like a long ago, 2,000 years ago, most of the churches were functioned in a complementarian way. But that's actually not, it, it's not a theological choice that many of them were making. It's just reflective of the larger society. That's just the way that it, that it was as a male-dominated society, a patriarchal societies. But even in the midst of that, you'll see that there are different ways that women can take leadership. And we'll talk about this more in, in two weeks. If we fast forward to today, especially closer to current history, we know, of course, that in Vancouver, churches practice different things. In Canada, churches practice, practice different things. And also in the world, we have churches that are complementarian and egalitarian. So there's mixed around uh, everywhere that we look. So in the wider church in both Canada and in the world, there are people who believe on either side of this. And we look at our traditions, the traditions, the theological traditions that we come out of are also mixed. So we say here that we have three theological traditions that we try to take the best of and, and uh, keep out the excesses. So the first is the charismatic tradition. So in that tradition, right now, most churches, I would say, are egalitarian. In the neo-reform tradition, which I'm going to talk a little bit more about today, most churches are complementarian. 
And then in the Anabaptist tradition, which we're leaning into a lot in this season, there's a mix. There's a mix of churches doing different things. And so our traditions also speak to this mix and this opportunity for both. The third is from our conference. So we're part of the Mennonite Brethren Conference. And in 2006, they released this statement. Reality, and they're not talking about us, okay, as the church. This is why I want, we need to change the name, okay, because it's too confusing. Reality, not moral failure, nor biblical infidelity, nor spiritual immaturity, dictates that there will be many, not just one way of looking at the issue of, of the role of women in ministry leadership. And they quote Romans 14. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. The Board of Faith and Life, which is a group of people that comprises like lay people all the way to people in leadership, they, they recommend that the conference bless each member church in its own discernment of scripture, conviction and practice to call and affirm gifted men and women to serve in ministry and pastoral leadership. So this is from our conference. It's basically an encouragement to do exactly what we're doing. So it's the same idea, discern, this importance of discernment. And then finally, my own personal experience shows me that there's people on both sides of the debate. And uh, I think we see complementarians and egalitarians kind of like this. If we go to the next slide, Joel, that they're like, one is on one side and one is on the other side. But in my personal experience, I actually experienced something more like this. That there's actually a lot more overlap. And the people I know, know and love people and have heroes on actually both sides. So, and, and, and these people that I, that I know, they, in the middle, they share more in common than they have in opposite, which is that they, they follow Jesus. Both of them have high views of scripture and want it to speak to us today. They all value women. They all respect women and their giftings. They all desire to work together and are filled with the spirit, and yet they come to different conclusions on this issue. And so we want to present both sides. So today we're going to look at the biblical basis, like I said, for complementarianism. Now, before we get to the texts, um, because this is probably the more uh, uh, problematic one in Vancouver today. We need to just do a little bit of ground clearing for what we're about to say. So the first uh, thing I need to clear the ground on and just make clear is that in this teaching, I'm actually not trying to convince you to change your mind. I don't care or want you to change your mind. Um, oh, sorry, I'm going to say something. That's the second point. I'm going to go to the first point first. Um, I'm going to try to speak of the best of complementarianism and not the worst. I think we're all fairly aware of what the worst is, and we'll get to some of that today. I'll talk a little bit about it, but I'm going to try to give the best, my understanding of what the best arguments here. And there are poor biblical arguments and poor reasons that people are complementarian. Let me give you one poor biblical argument. There's this idea called the eternal submission of the Son to the Father which is basically this idea that, that Jesus always submits to God, so therefore women should always submit to men. That is, a, that is a bad idea. That's a bad biblical idea, and it's just a bad idea in general. It causes all sorts of problems when you start to think about who our God is and the uniqueness of the Christian God. But some complementarians believe it, but it's just a bad argument. The second is that there's other just bad reasons for being a complementarian. One is called the ontological argument. So ontology or ontological just means the nature of something in the very nature of it. So some people believe that in their very nature, women just are submissive and like to follow. That's just how they're made. They're not made to be leaders. Instead, they're made to follow. That's just a poor argument, both from scripture and in life. And I would say it like this. Actually, all of us were made to follow. It's not just women. Everyone is made to follow. That's the, the story of the Bible. 
Other people want to be uh, complementarians because they just don't like feminists. And I'm like, that's fine. If you don't like feminists, that's fine. It's not a good reason to take a biblical position. Okay? Another reason, a slippery slope, which is this idea, so it's a logical fallacy that says, if we allow, in this case, women to become in leadership in our community, then all these other things will happen. So, uh, for example, very specifically, what people would be concerned about is authority of scripture and LGBTQ inclusion issues. And so, that's a, a way of thinking about it, but it's a logical fallacy. Instead, let's deal with every topic separately. Don't have to worry about what the next issue is. We can just talk about these things separately and differently. And I would say, so uh, specifically, I would say biblically, this is a bad idea because that, the Pharisees did exactly the same thing. They would say, oh, there, here's these, these rules we don't want to break, so let's build more rules around them to make sure that nobody breaks these rules. And if you've read the Bible, you know that Jesus wasn't like two thumbs up for the Pharisees. So let's not do the same thing. Finally, there's the idea of being a misogynist. Um, so a misogynist is a person who just doesn't like or is discriminatory towards women. And this one is especially important for us to talk about because it's a trope of uh, complementarians, that all complementarians are misogynists. So we kind of look at it like this. Complementarians and misogynists are very, very close. So uh, I encourage us just to separate these two things. So there are going to be some complementarians who are misogynists. That is just true. Any group of people that you gather, you're going to have some bad actors in that group, just like this group, right? We know who they are, <laughs> right? Um, but the point is just to say that most of the complementarians I know and any of them that I respect are not misogynists and are very against that idea. So if we're going to speak of the best, then we need to, we need to separate that out. There are going to be misogynists who are complementarians, but not all complementarians are misogynists. Okay, now back to my original point. The second thing we need to do for ground clearing is that I'm not going to... I'm not here to try to change your mind this morning. I'm not interested in that. And realistically, Mitch and I were chatting about this, and he's like, you know, people just don't change their mind in 20 minutes or even in a couple weeks. That's just not true of, of usually what happens. And as leaders, actually, as we gathered and prepared for this time, that, that was not our goal, is to get you to change your mind on the topic. So if you're here this morning and you're, you lean egalitarian, that's great. By me preaching on this, I'm not actually trying to get you to change your mind. Instead, I invite you to listen to learn. Listen this morning to learn. So I'm not get, I'm, don't try to stop from being defensive and explaining everything away that I try to say. And just be curious. Be curious. I'm not trying to get you to change your mind, but just listen why some people would fall in this camp. Why some God-loving, biblical people who love Jesus would fall in this camp. Be curious rather than guarded. That's the invitation for this morning. So you might ask, if we're not doing this, if I'm not here trying to change your mind, why in the world are we do, doing this? Let me give you a couple reasons why. The first is to help us be centered rather than, than bounded. So in centered set church, you can believe the wrong things. It's possible. So you could come here this morning and be like, you know what, we th I think as Christians, we should go and murder our neighbors. Is everybody with me? And we'd be like, no, that's like a bad idea. That's not, that's not what it means to follow Jesus. And so there are bad ideas. But as I've said on this issue, I, I think there's both. You can believe either one. That's why discernment is important. And so it's not so much a bad idea. It's the way that we hold this idea that becomes problematic. When we create it as a boundary, when we say, I know I'm okay because I'm in the right group, unlike those other people. 
And so if we're a complementarian, we'll say, oh, like, I know, unlike those unbiblical egalitarians, we actually practice the right thing here. Or if you're egalitarian, you might say something like, well, I'm glad we love women and we're on the right side of history, unlike those complementarian churches down the road. And that's not what we want to be here in this place. We, we don't want to put our identity in what we believe in this issue, rather to put it in Jesus. Jesus came and he gave his life for us. And he's reigning and ruling and he invites us to, in some small way, be a representative of him in this, in this place, in this time. That's enough. That's enough. We don't have to go and measure ourselves against other churches or other people. You know, in my experience, they're all just trying their very, very best. And so we don't have to, to have that kind of identity about it. Let's put our, set our identity in Jesus. And so the discernment of this is super important. That's why we're going through it. But it's not an identity issue. And so we're teaching on both sides so that maybe you can come out of this and be like, oh, I could understand why someone could be like that. And maybe even I could call them brother or sister, even if I disagree. And that's what it looks like to be centered. The second thing is to help us wrestle with God's story. I think that what happens to most of us is that we come to any kind of issue with a, with a preconceived notion of what the outcome is. So we, we have an idea of the way that we'd like this to go. And so what we do is we come to the Bible with that notion. And we look for the Bible to agree with us on whatever issue it is. And then we ex- try to explain away the other passages that, that don't agree with us. And then both sides do this. And so by teaching both sides of this, I'm actually wanting us to take some time to come and wrestle with Scripture. Wrestle wrestle with the parts of Scripture that will disagree with you. Wrestle with the parts of our story that maybe you don't really like in order that we would become people who learn to put God's story uh, closer to the center of our lives and allow it to speak to us, even in areas we might disagree. So we're doing this to help us be centered rather than bounded. We're doing this to help us wrestle with God's story. And then third, to honor the people who have come before. Honor those who have come before in this community. So I looked it up this week. This church actually started in 2008, in the fall of 2008, which means that we're almost 15 uh, years old. And as any church, it came out of a certain moment in time, a cultural moment in, in time. And it was affected largely uh, by this church in Seattle. And this, this specific person... His name is uh, Mark Driscoll. You may or may not have have heard of him. So this is a picture of of how he looked, probably closer to 2008. Um, But this guy, so Driscoll, he was really funny. He was extremely brash, and he liked to talk about sex a lot. These are just three three characteristics, as I think that's on his LinkedIn profile. And uh, so so he was really big at that time. So what happened in our community? Our speakers were trying to be funny. Always successful? Probably not. They were very brash, and they talked about sex a lot. He led a church called, called Mars Hill. This is uh, one picture that was taken from this church. So it was down in Seattle, very close to us. And uh, it was like an indie rock concert every time, maybe like a grunge concert, if you ever went. And uh, it dark colors, distressed fonts, and really loud music. That was like a key thing for them. That was gonna, the music was going to be awesome and as loud as possible. So what did we do here? Same thing. Tried to make it like an indie rock concert. We met in a gym. There was no windows. They would turn all the lights off. It was crazy loud. And I remember Josh Duell, who was one of the uh, apprentices at the time, just screaming the hymns, just like screamo in there. And we brought like my 60-year-old mother-in-law, and she's just like, what is happening in this place? But it was just like, that was what was happening there. That's what was happening here. Okay. And the theology was another really important piece of that. So 
Driscoll, he didn't start, but he was part of really a growing movement called Acts 29. It was a church planting network, which had a huge effect on many churches, actually, here in Vancouver, but this church specifically. And so here is their current theological uh, distinctives. This is how they write about themselves. So this is, this is taken off their website today. We affirm the Lausanne Covenant, which is a covenant, it's an agreement that many churches, if you ever want to work together, you might say, okay, we agree to the Lausanne Covenant. It's a way of talking about just the most important things that it means to be a Christian. So we agree about this, and then we're committed to five theological distinctions. Gospel centrality in all of life, sovereign grace of God in saving sinners, the work of the Holy Spirit for life and ministry, the local church as God's primary mission strategy. And you might be like, oh, okay, good. Like, these are kind of common things. Number five, the equality of men and women and the principle of male servant leadership. So for them, this was a key, it wasn't just an idea. It's like, if we're going to talk about five things, this is going to be one of them. It was, it was beyond just like, we believe this, to like, this is our identity as a group of people. So, we're not part of Acts 29 anymore, um, partly because I, I, I just think, like, if we're going to talk about five things, this is not one of them. I'm not that, I don't think it's at that level for us. It shouldn't be at that level. Um, but it influenced our church at that time. And so I'd say our church has kind of gone through three phases. One first phase, where it was, like, all about this. A second phase, which probably was where many of you came in, where this was not a big issue for us. And now we're moving into this third phase which there's a question mark about we're going through a discernment process of how we will practice this in the future. But in that early phase of our church, we were very influenced by this. And that might shock some of you because you came in the second phase where we haven't emphasized this at all. But it is part of the history. And here's what I would say. Acts 29 has and continues to do great work. We're not part of their community anymore, but they continue to do great work. And our church would not exist without them which is different than saying we have to agree with them or be a part of them. But I say this because we talked about last week how how easy it is to fall into this Whig vision of history, where we look at and say this moment is golden and the future could be even better. And we look back at the past and say, like, what a dark time when those people were in the dark and they didn't know any better. And now we're so much more enlightened and we're going to move on to a future that's better. And here's what I would say about being part of all three times of those sections of our church. There were good and bad things that happened at the beginning. And there are many people whose lives were blessed and people who were ministered to at that time. And there will be good and bad things about our church in the future. And so let's just not dunk on that time and those people and just recognize and honor them that this is part of the history of our church. And we don't have to be better than that time either in our church. But we can just rather honor them by speaking well of them and then move on to what God has for us. So... What is the biblical reasoning for complementarianism? You might be like, wow, you just spent 20 20 minutes just taking warm-up swings. Would you just tee off already? Here we go. Okay, here's my take. This is my take, okay? And trying to put it in a succinct way. Complementarians would believe that in the Bible, there are some passages that explicitly state that men have, they would use the word headship or leadership over women. That that's the way that God made the world. And so there's three parts I would say to that. Again, these are my words. So it's a representation issue, so that men between God and other people represent. Secondly, that they have a responsibility. And then thirdly, that they are to lead. And that's a servant leadership, not domineering. Remember, we're speaking of the best and not the worst here. But those three three things. So responsibility, representation, and servant leadership. 
And then, as I talked about last week, there's three places that you can apply this idea. So you can apply it in all of society, and there's some complementarians, but not very many who do that. You can apply it in the church, and then you can apply it in the home. And we're just talking about church here today. Again, if you want to talk about any of the other issues, I'm happy for you to buy me a coffee and uh, come on the 12th with your questions. So let's take a look at some of the passages that would lead people, because this is kind of crazy talk in Vancouver. Why would anyone believe this? Let's look at some of the passages. 1 Corinthians 14. Paul writes, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to submit themselves, as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, since it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate from you, or did it come to you only? Happy Sunday, by the way. I just thought. <laughs> Glad you're here. So we feel the emotion of those words. Maybe have a, a strong emotional reaction. Probably because of the word silence, submission, disgraceful women, and then all. These, these cause our spidey sense to go up. So that's our, whatever your first reaction is, totally fine. But let's dig a little bit further into what Paul is saying here. And first we need to do is, is look at some context. So let's go a couple chapters earlier where Paul writes these words. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. So I, I did think about this after, and I was like, let's just introduce another crazy topic outside of it. So there's actually in this passage, there's things about men and women praying and prophesizing and how they're supposed to do it well. But the, the two things I want to say about this passage is, first, there seems to be something cultural going on here. There's a cultural issue that's happening. Because Paul says a few verses uh, later, judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? So let's judge. Is it fine? Have, did you all pray with Gareth and, and nobody came and just like put hats on your head? Okay, so we didn't practice that earlier today. So this is not a universal principle. Almost every theologian would, would agree with that. And so please don't just find another thing to be angry about this morning. Um, but it's just, this, is a, this seems to be something very focused and cultural going on here. The second thing is this, is that Paul seems to contradict himself. If you think about what he's saying, in chapter 11, he's saying, oh, women will be praying and prophesying in the, government, in the, in the gathering together. Then in chapter 14, he's like, no women can speak. So we're kind of left with like, well, which one is it? And this is from his own words himself. Okay, and this is a really important biblical reading principle. Really, any kind of reading principle is this. But the Bible specifically. The Bible is God's word to us, but God is always speaking through people. He's speaking through people. So in this passage, he's speaking through this guy named Paul. And if you want to know one thing about Paul is that he's a passionate guy. A very passionate guy. So uh, in another one of his letters, there's these people who are coming and they're trying to get everybody circumcised. And so he just says, well, why don't you just cut the whole thing off? And like, does he mean they should cut the whole thing off? No. He's just like, he's just, you know, he's a passionate guy. He says, I'm a man that's full of zeal. We talked about that last week. So we shouldn't be surprised when he speaks as a passionate, zeal-filled person rather than like with robotic precision about everything. We have to let him be himself and understand who he is a little bit. And that's not to say that then, oh, we can just forget everything Paul says. You know, Paul's just being a teenager again where he's like, you hate me, you never loved me. You're like, well, that's not really true, Paul. Uh, that's not what we're saying. We can't just get rid of everything he's saying, but we have to just be, understand that he's a person that God is using to speak in this context. 
So what it seems like is happening then is that Paul is not saying women can't speak or saying that they have no public uh, roles, but rather that he's regulating their roles within the, the faith community. So what is he saying here? Well, this whole section, again, the context is really important, is about how the Corinthian church gathers together as a community. And if you've read Corinthians, you know that they have like quite a few problems. This is just one of them. And orderly worship was a problem for them at the time. And you have to understand that at that time, church, that, like the gathering that they had wasn't like ours. Like, so we start, we say we start at 10.05, we actually start at closer to 10.10, then we have two songs, then Gareth comes up, and then we have the kids go down, and then I come and drone on for 40 minutes or so. Okay, that's like every week that basically happens here. That was not what happened in their gatherings. It was very, very different. So they were much more collaborative and organic. So anyone could contribute. Paul says in another place in Corinthians, he's like, everyone has, anyone can have a song, a hymn, an encouragement, a prophecy. So the people were just, it was much more organic and people were throwing things in, uh, in the mix. And on top of that, there was itinerant speakers who would just come. They would just show up. They would come from another country or from another place and they would say, hey, I have God's word for you. I want to stand up, read God's word and tell you what I think it means. And so you can think of it almost like YouTube where there's like anybody with a webcam can just be like, hey, I know I didn't finish high school, but... Now I am an expert on vaccines. And you're like, well, I don't know. But you do have a webcam, so you can just throw up whatever you want. And so it's like that was kind of the idea. People could just come and say whatever it is that they wanted to say. And so what do you do in this kind of a scenario? And Paul, you got to remember, he leaves. He's not there anymore. So what Paul did was he borrowed an idea from his Jewish tradition and specifically from the synagogue structure. So they had leaders in their community who were older people, who were in good standing in the community and understood their tradition. And they would sit at the front seats uh, in the synagogue, the places of, of honor, and they would give their yes and amen to things. So if a speaker came up and you see Jesus doing this, Paul gets to do this, he would just come into the synagogue and preach, Jesus would just come into the synagogue and preach, and it would be up to the people in the front rows to say, who are the elders, to say yes and amen, I agree with this. And they would say those words, amen, amen, or sometimes it's translated in our Bible, verily, verily, or truly, truly. And as a sidebar, you can see then, this is why people got really angry at Jesus. Because he would come, he would stand in the front, and he would read from the scroll, and then he would say, truly, truly, I say to you. And people would get so angry with him because he was taking the role of the elder. And they'd be like, you can't do that. You can't speak with that type of authority. And so he challenged that structure. But Paul borrows from the structure for these people to kind of be the safeguards. You can think of it this way. They're the ones who like give the blue check mark out on Twitter. Okay? They're like, okay, this person's legit. This is what they're saying. So in each city that Paul left, that was his job, part of his job, to set up a group of people who had the authority to discern what was good and helpful and true teaching and what was false teaching. It was this group of people. And the Greek word that's used for this group of people is episkopon, or sometimes we translate it as bishop in your Bible, or overseer, or elder, which is the word that we use in our community. And, and most commentators think that it's this role of elder that is being referred to in 1 Corinthians 14. So that women in this scenario are not supposed to take that specific role. And one of the reasons they think this is because there's another passage that speaks to it very similarly in 1 Timothy 2. So it's right in the same section where Paul is talking again about the qualifications for these episcopone, for these elders. And he says these words, A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. 
I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Instead, she's to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. So again, just taken in through the nose and just out through the mouth. Just nice belly breath. So five things I want to point out from this text. The first is that the women are invited to learn. So what we, when we hear this, our, again, our spidey sense goes up around the word submission and silence. From what uh, theologians say is actually in the first century, the thing that would, would be the most shocking that would pop to the original audiences is that the women are invited to learn. Very, very unique in that time in history among religions. The second is quietness. Again, we think of this word as someone being silenced, and it could possibly mean that. But other places, Paul uses this word in a very positive context. And so he says, uh, all Christians should actually work quietly, which is basically saying, don't draw attention to yourself. It's not about you. If you work quietly without, without drawing attention to yourself, you actually honor God. In Acts 11, it talks about silence as just being a way of being united. It's not about being silent, but rather not causing disagreement within the group. So we don't have to necessarily think of women being shushed in the community. Now the three words that are probably more contentious. The word submission here. So complementarians read this word and understand it to mean this idea that, like I talked about, male headship of the leaders of the church, that women are to come under that and submit to that kind of leadership. And I want to point out very clearly, it's not to all men. That's not what this passage is talking about. It's to the specific male leaders, the elders of the church, which this passage is saying, and complementarians would say, is men, male leaders of the church. The second is, or the fourth is authoritative teaching. I do not permit a woman to have authority and teach over a man. The idea here is that these words go together. And so what is being barred from these women in this specific context is authoritative teaching, which we and other people link with the elders' teaching, the yes, the amen, amening, not necessarily the teaching from this place. And then fifth and finally, this is really important for complementarians. There's a link to creation, so some people, they would say, some people say this is just a specific context. But when Paul says, oh, I'm actually linking it to the creation story, I'm linking it to a time that was before sin, to the way that God created the world in a good and perfect way. And so when he says that uh, women are to, keep, to submit to the male leaders of the church, they say that that means, therefore, that it's for all churches for all time, this idea. Okay, which is not the same thing, again, as the ontological argument of saying women are worse or women are dumber or that they're just followers. That's not what it's saying. It's just saying that this is the way that God has created the world. And many complementarians that I've read will actually say, you know what? We don't know why. We can't explain it to you, but this just seems to be the way that God has set up the world. And that's led to our current practice in gender and leadership. So we've kind of had two iterations, like I've said of our church preceding this time. So at the first point of time, we had male-only elders and no women preaching or teaching. In this season, about eight years ago, seven years ago, we changed our position before I became the pastor, which is to say male-only eldership, but women can preach and teach. So the basic principle, I would, or the, the, the most simple way I could explain our current position that we are going through the process of discerning of whether we're going to keep or change is this. God gifts indiscriminately. The Bible says that. He just gives gifts to men and women, rich and poor, indiscriminately. And so people are encouraged to use their gifts here. But there's one role that seems, the role of elder, that seems to be in, in these passages 
uh, for men exclusively. So that's what we have practiced up until this point in time. So that's the basis of it, and, and that's, that's what's up for discussion this week in, in the community group. Like I said, next week we'll talk about the biblical argument for egalitarianism, which is not to explain away everything that I just did, but to give you both sides. So now I want to just take some time to give two quick, um, I don't know if it'll be quick, but two applications from this passage, and hopefully turn this from more of a lecture into something like a sermon. So the first is this, you don't have to like this teaching. You don't have to like the egalitarian or complementarian passages or what I've said. And in fact, if I'm 100% honest with you, I don't like it. If it was up to me, I'd be like, ah, let's just take those out. I don't like it. And so if you're egalitarian-leaning, you cannot like this. And you could think our church shouldn't stay in its current position. And that's part of the discernment that we're going through. So we invite you to that. But I want to place a little bit of a challenge here in front of you, which is this. I think it's very, very hard for you to be egalitarian and to say that all churches, everywhere, at all times, should be egalitarian, based on these passages and and many others. Because at bare minimum, at bare minimum, it seems like Paul is telling these two churches in Corinth and the churches that Timothy leads that they should not have women in leadership, at that level of leadership, at least for a season. Now, there's various theories about why Paul says this. Maybe specific women, in the, or the, the women in these specific scenarios were untrained, or they were being disruptive, or that they were being contentious with their husbands in public. But the same could be possible today. There are places in the world where it would just be unbelievably dangerous for a woman to take on an eldership position in a church, which is not to say that she shouldn't, or that all churches should do the same thing, but it would be unbelievably dangerous Or it would be missionally extremely unwise for a woman to be in leadership. I think of like closed Muslim countries. That it would be missionally unwise, in my opinion, for them to do that. And that's what most of them do. There are also certain cultures where women may not have had access to any kind of education or formal leadership opportunities. And so at least for a season to put them into leadership would just be unwise, in my opinion. It's not to say it's a good thing. It's just to say... In my personal opinion, it would be unwise. So, if you're an egalitarian here today, which again, is fine. It's not like you need my blessing, but I'm not trying to change your mind about anything. But, I do think that if you say all churches, everywhere at all times, should be egalitarian, then it's more likely that you are moved by our cultural moment and the waters that we swim in, rather than what the Bible says. And I say that gently, just to push you a little bit. And I'd love for you to come out of this time, again, not as a complementarian. It's not what I'm trying to do. But as someone who can say this. I understand uh, that, that gender and leadership, this question is a question of discernment. It's not a black and white issue. It's not a right or wrong issue. And so how we, how we, it's not a confessional issue, we might say. And so different people are going to discern differently on this issue. And I can understand, even though I don't agree, why some people in some communities would just come out in a different place than me. And then I can go the further step to say, I call you a brother or sister. Even though there's a complementarian church or an egalitarian church down the road, we can say, oh, those are our brothers and sisters. We don't practice the same thing as them. But we're not against them. And maybe you could even go a little bit farther to say this. That because we see diversity in Scripture we actually might say, we, we need those people. 
We need the people who are different than us and practice different things than us, even though we might practice something totally different than them, to reflect a God who's just much bigger than any of us. That we might actually need that kind of God. That if you can go the step even farther to say something like that, I think that's what it looks like to be truly centered on Jesus. And here I want to commend a certain group of people who are here, who in my opinion have been modeling this way of being Jesus-centered on this topic. Because for reasons that escape me, People continue to come to this church, even at the very beginning, who are egalitarian. And I was like, it's like written in blood in certain places, okay? I'd be like, I don't understand why you keep coming, but they come. And they know we're complementarian, and they're egalitarian, and sometimes even strongly egalitarian. But they've stayed. They've stayed. And and some of them, it's meant that they haven't been able to lean in fully. And that's totally fair, and that's fine. But for other people, you've leaned in, even though you disagree with this stance, you've leaned in all the way. You've served You've given sacrificially. You've submitted to the leadership of this church. And you've been a brother and sister. And so I honor you today if that's your story. Because that's what it looks like to be centered on Jesus. And there are people in this community that that's their story. And I encourage you to go to them and to hear their story if they share in your community group. Because that's what it looks like to be centered. is to say, this isn't the biggest deal for me. And I'm going to stay in this group of people. And love here because it's where God has called me. And my hope is that coming out of this process that all of us can mirror the ways that they have shown us love for Jesus. And being centered on him in this process. The last thing I want to say this morning. Again, a challenge to us. Is that the best of complementarianism in my mind issues another subtle challenge to all of us. Wherever we land on the spectrum. As people who are Western individualistic people. And that's that complementarianism highlights the importance of submission to God. That he is in the center of the story and we are not. And this is not to say that egalitarians don't do that too. But for complementarians, that's very core to who they are. And so they highlight submission in a very important way. Now, I get that submission is a triggering word for many of us. Specifically in cases where we're talking about men submitting, or women submitting to men. And we read that as a setup for domineering behavior and potential abuse. And that's happened in the world. Uh, That's happened in many different places. And very sadly, I would say, not the abuse that I know of, but the domineering behavior has actually been part of our story here. And since I've become the pastor, I found out about some of that. And I just have to say that I am um, embarrassed and extremely saddened by that. I did not know it was happening at the time, but there were, there were men who were not in leadership but just took it upon themselves to tell women to be quiet. And that's, there's no place for that regardless of, of, of who you are and, and where you come out on this issue. So submission is a word that just causes triggers for us, and even if we widen the lens farther, we talk about things like intimate partner violence that we know about, and we think of this term and this teaching as being part of that story. So I say this understanding that all of that is probably humming in the background for many of us, and it makes it almost impossible to hear these words without a reaction. But one of the things I appreciate about complementarian theology, the best of it, is their emphasis on submission to God. And at its best, that's what I've experienced, and I've seen complementarian, in seen in complementarian circles that I've been a part of. And let me just give you two examples for men. There has been this call to stop just having your life circle around yourself and comfort, like playing video games and watching porn, and actually live, grow up and live into the calling that God has for you. To take responsibility, to use your life for more than yourself, but to serve other people. And I'll tell you, that's been part of my story 
my early 20s. It was so helpful to me. Did it leave residue? It did. But it was also an unbelievably helpful time. And I know so many men that that's their story. That that complementarian theology has actually helped them to move out from just a comfortable life into a life of service for God. And for women, it's it's very hard for me to speak about this because I'm not a woman, but there are some women that I really admire and have learned a lot from. Women like Kathy Keller, Jackie Hill Perry, Jen Wilkin, Rosario Butterfield, all these women are complementarians. And, And they're all unbelievably gifted and talented women. And their story and their life, they would mostly say, has been like, yeah, take leadership, grow, grow, grow. And they come to this complementarian theology. And for them, it represents this point. Am I going to live out my story or am I going to submit to God's? And their story is not my story to tell or needs to be your story. But that, that part of dying and rising, of choosing the path of saying no to myself and dying and rising is part of their story. And for them, they would say it's a place where they've met Jesus. It was incredibly hard, and probably still is incredibly hard for them. But they've met Jesus in that place. They chose to die and rise, and there's a new closeness with him because their story is not pushed into the center anymore. Now, the idea that we submit to Jesus by submitting to qualified male leadership in the church, it may just cause massive chafing for you. And you're just like, I just need to go get some gold bond. I'm just chafing so hard here, okay? That's fine. I'm not, again, trying to convince you to be a complementarian. But please hear me that this is one of the gifts that this brings to us, is is that we are all called to submit. We can just take the layer of male leadership out, but to submit to God. That that is the shape of the life of Jesus, so that is the call for every single one of us. That he came, he died, and he rose, and that is the, the, the call for each one of us to pursue that submission to God and following him in dying and rising. And so I leave us with these words from Philippians 2, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, where it encourages us to take the shape of life in submission to Jesus, not because he demands it, although he could. He's the reigning and ruling king of the world. Not because he's the rightful king, although he is. Not just because he's a man, although he came as a man, but because he went first. That's the story that this tells We submit, we give our lives in dying and rising because that's what Jesus did. And so we follow him. So here's what the passage says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Decentralize your story. Everyone should look not only to their own interests, but rather to the interests of others. And adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Follow him. He's the one we follow first and foremost. No matter if you're complementarian, egalitarian, or somewhere else on the spectrum. Because Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had become a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. This is systematic submission and lowering of himself. The king of the world to someone who dies this terrible death, shamed and an outsider. He does that for you and for I, and as an invitation to this new kind of life, rather than raising ourselves, raising our status, to come and to die. And when we do, we also take on the second part of the story. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This pattern of dying and rising is what we're all called to. 
Not because some man stands up here and tells you, but because we follow Jesus. This is the pattern of his life, the pattern that we are called to as his church, as we follow him. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you uh, for your presence with us and for your word, even in these places where it is very difficult for us to hear and appreciate. It's not a warm, fuzzy Sunday. But we still thank you that you're present with us today and that there's this call for us to not put our story in the center, but to actually revolve around you. And this word submission is is such a difficult word for us to hear in 21st century Vancouver. But we invite you to take your weighty, heavy place in the midst of us as we pray, as we worship together. May you be palpably present. And may we, in all of the small ways that you ask of us, may we just bend our knee, as this pastor says. May we take our lives and present them as living sacrifices before you, not because um, we're trying to buy anything from you, but because you went first. And you call us now, you invite us into this life, a new life, a new way of living, a new way of being human that shapes us around your life and calls us to look like you. So as we come together in this time now, as we sing, as we pray, as we take communion together, as we give, in all the different ways that we respond, may you be present, may you lead and guide us, we pray, both, both in this moment and as we discern into this week. So we give this time to you and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.